You are listening to WHOA Podcast, coming to you from Gainesville, Florida. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the WHOA GNV Podcast, the podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go, whoa. Today on the show, we have Richard Allen, a Gainesville-based entrepreneur who's co-founded a number of companies, including several that are on the NASDAQ, and it goes on and on and on. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to like summarize this man's history, this man's bio, but Richard, thank you so much for being here, man. Hey, thanks, thanks, great to be here. Why don't you quickly give us, we're gonna dive into the origin stories in a minute, but before we do that, why don't you quickly give us just like the 30 to 60 second version of who you are and what you do. Yeah, okay, so been around a long time, been in Gainesville a long time, since 1970. So long enough that we've started a bunch of companies. Uh, among those companies, Regeneration Technologies, RTI Surgical, first NASDAQ company, um, uh, Axigen, Peripheral Nerve Regeneration Company, NASDAQ company out, uh, out at the, the park, um, uh, OrthoHelix, uh, small bone orthopedics company, uh, currently Blue Azu Scout, uh, have started Exhale Assurance, Exhale Smart, um, and in Kalogics and a number of other companies. <laughs> <laughs> it goes on and it, on and on. It kind of does. <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome. Um, well, before we like dive into your origin story, I want to remind our listeners of a couple things. Well, first, Ty, <laughs> Ty texted me this morning and is like, dude, I am super, super sick. I have food poisoning. I'm definitely not making it. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> so Ty, our heart goes out to you, man. And we have this fulfilling. This is gonna be pretend Ty today. That Ty, you're looking a little white over there, bro. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. So we got, we got one of our Halloween skeletons in here um, filling in for Ty. <laughs> but um, so Ty, I hope you feel better, man. And you know, holiday season's coming up. Just a reminder to everybody who's listening on Tuesday, December 4th, at 10 a.m., we are going to be doing our WHOA GNV holiday extravaganza, which is gonna be at Krispy Kreme. Ty and I are giving away Krispy Kreme donuts right off, right off the press, off the hot glaze machine. <laughs> and we will be out there handing them out for free. So come out to Krispy Kreme and get your donuts and say hi to Ty and I. And, um, and Ty's standby over there looks like he could use a couple yeah. of Krispy Kreme. <laughs> he, he certainly does. He looks like he could use some Krispy Kreme donuts yeah. and, uh, you know, thicken up a little bit. <laughs> but uh, no, man, I'm so sorry that he's sick. I, it was bound to happen. It was bound to happen at some point. It was either going to be him or me. And I'm sure it'll happen again in the future. And we will just learn to roll with the punches because that's what I'm told you do in business is that you roll with the punches. Is that true? Yeah, lots, lots and lots <laughs> of punches. Lots of rolling. Right. Well, cool. Yeah. I want to now dive deeper into your history. I mean, take us back to what even led you to becoming an entrepreneur and getting on this roller coaster ride of all these different companies. And uh, yeah, so please take us take <laughs> us back in the day, Richard. Please. Well, I was born in a log cabin. <laughs> Is that no, true? No, 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 not, not true. <laughs> but almost. No, came from <clears throat> a small town in Central Florida, Lake Wales. Um, always was kind of a science geek on one side, you know, like science and nature, biology, all that kind of stuff. And and the other side of I was always in uh, trying to sell something. So I had. Um, 
uh, we were selling fruit, waxed fruit, uh, door to door as when I was probably eight, nine years old. Uh, by the time I was 11, I think I had, I was raising little white rabbits and I would go around at Easter time and sell, you know, little Easter bunnies door to door. How old were you at this? <laughs> I was probably 11, 12 okay. at that time. Uh, by 13, I had my first real paying job. You know, I made 35 cents an hour working at the local theater and they g- gave me a waiver so I could work that, that young. Worked at 13 and 14 at the local theater. I really fell in love with both music and with business. Um, and, and I had maybe a year and a half that I was running the record store and was making lots of money. But the guy that owned the wholesale chain for that uh, wound up going bankrupt for a lot of personal reasons. Uh, he was up in Atlanta. So I had a chance to buy the store. But I wasn't making enough money to be able to afford to buy the inventory. So I go to the banks, say, hey, you know, I just need like, this store is making $75,000 a year. I just need maybe a $50,000 loan and I can scrap together re- the rest of it. And there was no way in the world banks were going to loan me any money. So at that point, I realized, you know what, I, I need to be able to figure out how business really works. So I went back to the university, uh, took a couple of extra jobs to be able to get through university, <clears throat> and wound up getting a degree in finance and accounting, got my CPA certificate, jumped out from there, spent a couple of years doing small business accounting from a CPA firm, which gave me this background into like 60 or 70 different businesses and how they work and how their numbers come together and how do they make money. And and that was a really great background for me. But at some point, I, I still I loved science and I loved technology. And that's where the next evolution took place because I got a chance to, as part of that, start working with heat pipe technology. Uh, Vietnam, uh, a Vietnam a uh, refugee had come over, Khan Din, with his family, a boat person, um, had started this company a few years later called Heat Pipe Technology. He wanted to be able to license some technology from NASA and didn't know how to do it. I went down to NASA headquarters and negotiated a license for this heat pipe technology that is used usually in satellites uh, to cool the ins- inside of satellites. And, and he wanted to use it for dehumidification in large commercial air conditioning systems. I licensed the technology for him, took over as CFO with his company, um, and that led to other technology companies, including Sabine. Anybody that's in the music world probably knows Sabine. They made the world's smallest and, and, and best-selling musical instrument tuner. Yeah, and they're like, are they still right down and, the road? And yeah, they're still right down the road. Uh, actually, Korean-owned, I think, at this point. But, uh, but uh, you know, bred here in Gainesville. Uh, terrific, terrific company. I got involved with him, with, with Doran, when he was starting that company because he was using some, uh, uh, using this new technology to put things down on chips and do... Uh, manufacturing using pick-and-place machines and they needed to build this new factory so I got involved in helping to build the new factory became CFO with Sabine at the same time I'm CFO with heat pipe tech Uh, so I wound up moving more and more into technology and and licensing and intellectual property started working then with the University of Florida's Office of Technology and Licensing. Okay, so what, what like years were these? So these are probably, so I was 76 is when I graduated the first time, 80 when I graduated the second time. So this is probably in the 81 to 84, 85 range. And uh, so, at, you know, at, at, at that point, um, I, I started doing more licensing, out-licensing from the University of Florida's Office of Technology and Licensing, finding companies that needed to have a specific technology the university had, 
working with the universities, licensing folks to get that marketed, if you will, to some other company. Um, as part of that, the University of Florida introduced me to Jamie Grooms. Jamie Grooms became my partner in Regeneration Technologies. Uh, Jamie had this concept of being able to take allograft tissue from the organ tissue donation network, m primarily bone tissue from the organ tissue donation network. And up until that time, surgeons had had to handcraft any time that they wanted to do a bone implant. They would literally have to open the patient up, make a surgical site, open them up, figure out where they needed to have the bone graft, pull out a piece of donor bone and, and shape it and then stick it in, see if it worked or not, then pull it back out, reshape it some more, stick it back in. Wow. It was just, you know, it made the procedures really long, really sloppy. They, they, they didn't have the precision that they needed. So, uh, uh, so Jamie's concept was people make these implants out of metal and they do it with CNC machines. How about if we built class 10 clean rooms, put CNC machines in those class 10 clean rooms and put bone tissue in instead of putting metal in, and created exactly the same grafts, but they're out of bone tissue. And then we'll cleanse them in a way that they'll have no antigenic response, they're not gonna create a, an immune response in the body, and the body is gonna remodel the bone into the patient's own bone over time. And lo and behold, turned out to be a terrific, terrific idea. We, uh, we started Regeneration Technologies, uh, I was I hit Wall Street, mailed out 60 copies of our business plan to various venture capital groups, went and visited the VC groups, brought in $6 million from some VC groups, built all the Class 10 clean rooms, started the manufacturing process, started selling. Two years later, in 2000, wound up taking it public. Um, so uh, went out on the NASDAQ. And RTI is still out there as our, you know, our first big med tech uh, IPO that we did in Gainesville. Um, and that was number one. That was number, that was number one. Yeah, <laughs> That's so, what's so fascinating yeah. about this is that yeah. that was the first company <laughs> to, yeah. to, to go to on Nasdaq, Nasdaq, yeah. right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, so, so Jamie and I spent a couple of years uh, after we took it public there. Then we created a company called Synogen, which is basically just a, uh, if you will, a small private equity venture fund of our own, with our own funding to start additional companies. From Synogen, we started Axigen Next. Um, Axigen is a peripheral nerve regeneration company. So they do, uh, they also organ and tissue donation network, but they're taking just the nerve tissue from the organ and tissue donation network. The nerve tissue then goes through a special processing, and this is processing that was developed at the University of Florida, again, in licensed from the University of Florida. Um, and, uh, and, and, and you create nerve grafts that are very long nerve grafts, so much, much longer than you can do with any artificial substance. Um, and with those, you can replace peripheral nerves. So if somebody's, been, uh, uh, if somebody's been injured in an accident and their facial nerves, their hand nerves, et cetera, this allows you to basically replace and regenerate those and it becomes their own nerve tissue. Hmm. Uh, so it's terrific and, and really, really effective in the Gulf War and that sort of thing when veterans were returning. Um, uh, so a, a, a few years later, it took us probably another four to five years after we started Axigen to get them public on the NASDAQ. Uh, took them out on the, on the NASDAQ. They're now a very successful company on the NASDAQ. And again, located out in the, in the biotech park in Alachua. Um, kind of simultaneously, we started several other companies. We started Kalogics which is the only company in that group that we started that's really not at all medical. 
uh, K-Logics is based on chaotic computing, which the brain is actually, the brain actually uses chaos, uh, chaos computing. Again, University of Florida technology that we unlicensed, but it's a way to be able to uh, keep chips secure so that folks aren't, uh, so that people can't use what's called a side channel attack on chips. So it's a chip security for computer chips uh, technology. Uh, that wound up being acquired a long time later. It was acquired about two years ago by AMD, um, you know, huge, huge chip company. So uh, a very successful company. Um, most of the development work we did on that was down in the NASA area. So, uh, you know, we had an office here, but not as much of a team here. We started OrthoHelix, which was a small bone orthopedics company, kind of similar to what we did with RTI, but this was actually done with metals, but they were really tiny little shaped metals that could be used on finger joints and could be used on toes and ankles and wrists and the like. Um, uh, they were acquired by Wright Medical, which is a very large NASDAQ medtech company as well. So um, those are, I think, the companies that we have that are NASDAQ companies at this point. Except we did have uh, recently um, Exhale, uh, Exhale Assurance. Exhale Assurance uh, was a company we started eight years ago, nine years ago. Does pulse oximetry via the side of the nose instead of by a fingertip, and uh, again, University of Florida technology. Um, when you're trying to take somebody's pulse ox uh, signal from their fingertip, you're trying to read their oxygen saturation in their blood, and you're doing it by shooting through their finger, uh, uh, you know, basically a, a laser, a LED laser through their finger, picking up that infrared signal, and, and being able to determine what level of oxygen is in the blood. Well, the problem is you're determining oxygen in the blood from a fingertip out here, which isn't necessarily the same as the blood that's going through your brain. And the blood going through your brain is what you're really concerned about. Interesting. Uh, on the side of the nose, you have a branching of the internal and external carotid arteries that are coming in and out of the brain itself. And it happens to run right by on the side of the nose, on the nasal ala. So the concept at the University of Florida over there was, let's take that same finger pulse oximeter design it specifically to be able to read the signals from the side of the nose and come up with a really soft little little tiny thing that goes around like a little nose hook on the side of your nose and it reads that internal and external carotid artery and you're getting direct feedback from the brain on what the pulse uh, what, what your oxygen saturation is so uh, that became a really 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 big product and was just acquired uh, about three months ago by Philips Healthcare the Dutch company a uh, big mega company on the New York Stock Exchange so that's another one of our public companies, and it's uh, it's here. I don't know if you know this, but we have more. I understand we have more uh, public companies in Gainesville in the medical tech space than Atlanta. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I love this place so much. <laughs> like UF is just awesome. Well, tell, so tell me a little bit about that process. I mean, when you were saying like license from the University of Florida, like is somebody was somebody coming up with these ideas, and you're like, oh, I can take that and I can sell that. Like what? Or like how does like what's that process like? Yeah. So so the university has had a really good. Uh, they they've been at the lead for a long time here uh, in in the United States of the universities that really do a good job of trying to commercialize their their technologies. So typically what's going on is you've got a researcher at the University of Florida, whether it's in a medical space or not, who's, you know, they're, they're trying to do something novel and unique, and, 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 and the Office of Technology and Licensing helps them to get patents on, on what they're doing. Um, and, and, and then 
then the office also tries to find companies that will partner with them and license those technologies or create companies around those licensed technologies that will commercialize them. So would you say these other opportunities came because of the success of the first? Yeah, I, I would say that um, the, so, our, so RTI's success actually predated uh, the, 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 the change that occurred at Office of Technology and Licensing. Okay. Uh, we came about two years before that. Uh, so partially as a result of the success of that, because the University of Florida, I, th- I, I, f- don't, I believe the numbers are something like 80 million that the University of Florida made on RTI when we did the, the whole IPO process. Um, so, you know, that was a substantial enough income for them that they realized, wow, we really, this is, a, this is the right way to do it. They brought in a guy, David Day, who's a really terrific, terrific guy, just recently retired from Office Technology and Licensing, but he ran the OTL license uh, office at the University of Florida for that whole time from RTI time, right after RTI time until about now. And his philosophy was always, let's license as much as we can license because I don't know what's going to win. I don't know what's going to be the winner. Let's just get as many licenses out there as possible, get all of our technology out in somebody's hands, and maybe we won't make as much on it as we could have made if we had negotiated a really, really great deal on every technology, but we'll have a lot more opportunity. And so that became his philosophy in, in, in how to license. So yeah, they, they became very aggressive and very uh, proactive about going after all of the scientists and all the researchers at the University of Florida and figuring out what is it that you're working on and is it something we can patent? And if we patent it, do you, do you want to start a company or do you know somebody that wants to start a company? Or by the way, we've got these connections over here of folks that would like to start a company. So they're always reaching out, looking for folks that would like to license the technology. That's they great. Do, they do a really good job of that. That's really awesome. Yep, yep. So, so you're still not done. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm, I'm like following this timeline of events that I have here for you. And so that was ex so, I mean, so you got so, to exhale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we so and, and and the other the other technology at Exhale, there are actually two Exhale companies. The other one is one that's also gonna be very successful. It's gonna be another few years before we have a big event with it. But uh, but it, it is breath based medication adherence monitoring. So the, the, the challenge with medication adherence monitoring, especially in clinical trials, if you can imagine this, you're a, you're a pharmaceutical company. You have spent, you've spent a, maybe a half a billion dollars on developing a drug and getting it up to your phase two and phase three clinical studies. At phase two and phase three clinical studies, you're gonna be spending another several hundred million dollars. And you're gambling basically on, you know, is, is this gonna, be as efficacious as we think it's gonna be or not. The, the, the facts are that when you put it out into the hands of folks in a phase two and a phase three clinical study where people have to go home and take the medication, blinded studies show that something on the order of 40 to 60% of the people that are in the study don't even take the medication. Mm. And you don't know if they didn't take it because if you can't interfere with the study to go like do a blood draw every week, because if you do that, you're interfering with the study. So you've got to kind of be passive about the study and you just have to wait until the end and pull off the cover and go, gosh, well, we didn't get the efficacy we needed. Well, you probably didn't get the efficacy you needed because half the people didn't take the, didn't take the study med, but you don't know that. Hmm. So uh, having a way to definitively tell if somebody actually swallowed a med is super important. And, and, and what we license out of the University of Florida is this concept of putting a tagant, a chemical marker or tagant, on the outside of a med that when you swallow it, 
it doesn't appear, that doesn't appear in your breath, but when the capsule transits to your stomach and is absorbed in your stomach, that a metabolite is created of that chemical taginth we put on. And that metabolite appears in your breath almost immediately. I mean, within five minutes, it's gonna be in your breath. So you get a reminder from this little device, time to take your medication, you open up your medication, you swallow it, you take it, you push the button, said, yes, I took my medication. All that's being reported in real time. Um, and, then, and then five minutes later, it lights up and it says, blow into the device. And you blow into the device like a breathalyzer and bing, gives a little green light and says, oh, great, got it, got your breath sample. And it knows definitively that, that that metabolite was created in your stomach. So you couldn't have taken the medication, put it in your mouth, spit it out, blown into the device, wouldn't work, have to have the metabolite from your stomach. So it gives you definitive readings. So for, uh, for pharmaceutical clinical trials, that's the only way to definitively tell. That's going to be a really, really big product. We've been working on it for a long time. Um, that's insane. And, <laughs> and that leads kind of through a circuitous path, like all of these things, to the, my, you know, the current company that I'm working with right now, which is Blue Azu. Uh, Blue Zoo Scout. Blue Zoo Scout has nothing to do, it would seem, with medical technology. We've got a little GPS tracker that is also an Internet of Things tracker. So it's basically a little a little board about this big. It's it's constantly uh, pinging up to the the servers. In this case, our AWS servers. So it's basically like a little on, uh, hotspot that's constantly running. It's got accelerometers in it, it's got GPS in it, um, and so it knows every, every, it knows all the time, 24-7, exactly where it is, it's reporting where it is, it's reporting whether it's being moved, whether it's being uh, interacted with, um, and, and reporting that up to the internet. Um, and, and it's called Scout, is, is the technology. Well, the origin of Scout was that when we developed the Exhale Smart Medication Adherence Monitor, that's gonna be going into people's homes. In many cases, it's going into the home of somebody that doesn't have a Wi-Fi system. You, you can't run a clinical trial saying, well, we're only gonna select people that have, that have Wi-Fi, because sure. that defies the statistical sampling that you need to do. So this allowed us to have, a, we, we needed to develop a little board that would do exactly that, that would be a hotspot 24-7, able to report from within that Exhale Smart device. That first board that we developed for Exhale then became the origin of, of, um, of our Scout uh, device. And to go way back further in the story, the, the person that is behind our Scout board is Glenn Zelniker. He's a PhD electrical engineer, a uh, few years younger than I am. Uh, but we go all the way back to Sabine. So when I went back to that original Sabine story, Glenn was our hotshot young electrical engineer, like one or two years out of his PhD at the University of Florida. And when we needed to develop uh, a, a new, uh, we were working on a pro audio sound uh, system. Um, and when we ran into problems with developing the, the firmware and algorithms in that, Glenn was the guy that could always come in and solve them. He was just brilliant. I lost track of Glenn for a couple of decades at least, during which he was working for Korean companies, uh, for, uh, for Ford Motor Company, for NASA, uh, doing uh, the development of all this firmware for uh, uh, digital signal processing and the like. And then Glenn ultimately got into the space of placement, and he's the one that originally came to me with this concept of being able to have this mobile hotspot device, if you will, that has become Scout. So Glenn is my partner in, in Scout. 
Um, so anyway, that's, uh, it's a long and circuitous I mean, and tangled story. Right? Yeah, well, that's what's so interesting about it, though, because, it, and it sounds like a lot of it has almost this waterfall effect. You know, you, like even the one that led to Scout, for example, like the connections and the entangling of all the companies and the even the knowledge and the connection, the relationships, you know, have led you to this point, which is really, really cool. <laughs> I've, I've always loved being in partners with somebody. I've, I've, I, I go back with all these companies that I've been involved with. I've never been a sole, sole proprietor, like the only owner of a company. I've always had at least one or two or three partners. So tell um, me a little bit about that, because I think that'll bring a ton of value to, to our audience. I mean, I was in a partnership and uh, in my early, early days, and we split after two years and had, a, you know, Different, different vision, things didn't work out. Um, and I think it's it's vital to, I mean, it's a marriage. Yeah, it, it <laughs> I mean, definitely, partnerships are a marriage, right? It so, definitely is a marriage. And, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that almost all, not, not 100%, but almost all of my partnership relationships in the past are still, we're still really, really close friends today. So it, number one, it's really important to be involved with people that you really would want to be friends with that you really have shared values. It is like a marriage, you know? You need to have shared values in a marriage. Uh, and, and, and so it's really similar to that. It, it's really helpful to have complementary skill sets. Um, like, I'm, I, I really love marketing, and I kind of love team building, and I love project management. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm not a great engineer. I mean, I've programmed before, I, you know, I've, but, I, but I, I'm, no, I'm no good at it. Uh, my uh, my Python book is still sitting on my desk. I'm still trying to you know <laughs> trying to get back into programming, um, but uh, uh, but but having somebody that's a terrific terrific coder as a partner, somebody that's got a terrific uh, skill set for doing apps or whatever it is, then you know just being complementary to those is helpful. And, and I think in my in my case, the fact that I like so many different things, I I, I love nature i love science i love biology i love technology I, you know and, and i love music and i uh and i love social sciences and all that so being kind of scattered allows you to t connect in to the the interests and avocations of uh of your partners um and, and so that's a really good connection is there ever like a time that you had to split with any partner you know, I've never had one that we've actually had to uh, split per se, and 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 that could be because uh, I mean we have had a couple of companies that we actually like got a year into the company and just had to say this isn't going to work. But it wasn't because of the people at all. It was just gotcha. because you know you, you you invested a year and some of your money and time, and you realized you know there's either too much competition or it's a too complicated of a marketplace or whatever. It's just not going to work. Um, the, uh, in, in most of the businesses I've been involved with, it's the nature of the business that you, you wind up with. I, I, I always have outside investors that come in and participate in them. So, you know, by the time you're several years into a business, when you might wind up splitting with a partner, you really kind of can't because you're both committed to all the folks that invested in your company and, and they're helping to drive you to success because you don't want to let anybody down. Yeah. So, yeah. There's so many directions I want to take this conversation right now. <laughs> so I'm going to try to like remember all of them so maybe we can circle back. Yeah. Let me let me uh jump into this word that I keep that I keep having pop into my mind as I'm like looking at that at your timeline of history with all these companies. I mean, 
there was definitely times where you were doing more than one thing. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, and, right? And, like it just had to be. And even today, I'm, I'm also, I'm also the uh, kind of titular CEO of a company called EEG Now, which is doing a, you know, it's basically, if you will, like a, like a little shower cap that has the 1020 electrode setups that are necessary to do uh, to do EEG monitoring. Uh, which today normally EEG monitoring is going to take somebody 30 or 40 minutes, uh, you know, with a trained technician to put all these little EEG monitors on to see yeah. if you've sustained a neurological damage of some sort in an accident or whatever. And, and this is something you can just pop on. Any technician can pop on in about three minutes. They're recording EEG. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> so we're, and we just got FDA clearance for that recently. But so that, you're, so that you're doing also, a multitude <clears throat> of things. Yeah, and that also, I mean, that goes back to another company that we had started a few years ago, Optima Neuro. Uh, that was a, another University of Florida technology, and the the principal researcher and PhD MD behind that is the principal PhD MD behind EEG now. Okay. So again, that's just going back to, to it's, that it's as much as as much relationship as anything. Sure. That you know you you find people that are really brilliant, a lot smarter than you are. That's right. always the secret. Find a lot of people that are a lot smarter than you are to be your partner. Well, that's a great lesson to learn. Um, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and 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 uh, so that yeah so I'm I'm doing those two things simultaneously. So right how do you now. balance it all? Like how I mean because <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I mean like in entrepreneur you know you hear you hear kind of both things right and this is this is what I hear in entrepreneurship a lot I hear um, you know you should you should really stay focused on one thing give it your all give it your best like stay focused stay focused stay focused and then you have people say oh no you should like really you need to diversify you need to have multiple streams of income I mean th that's really yep. pulling from two ends <laughs> you know what I mean it is I mean so so how do you make that determ the determination of what's right for you yeah well you know and, and and it really gets down to you know on the business side too that I, I, I hear I hear that a lot about focus 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 and it is true that in the areas that you are committed to at that moment, you need to be able to really focus on those areas. But you also need to be able to pivot quickly. The, the, the one takeaway I can, I can give you from all of the businesses that we've started, with the possible exception of one of those businesses, is that what we wound up succeeding at is not what we started out to do. Um, it, it, in almost every case, we thought we were gonna go one direction, but we kept our feet in two or three other streams and found really quickly that a couple of those other streams had pretty good current, and so we immediately pivoted and started focusing on those. Mm -hmm. Didn't necessarily stop what we were doing in the other one, but we, 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 we changed our focus. And so the ability to change your focus, just like in your personal life, the ability to change your focus, to, to let go of something that you're worrying about and to stop worrying about that and put your focus on something that's more constructive, it's the same thing that happens in business. Um, and, and so that's one of the secrets um, to being able to do multiple businesses or multiple opportunities within a business at the same, t at the same time is that focus. You, you wanna be able to focus, but you also wanna be able to let go of that focus when it's obvious that you need to let go of it and put the focus somewhere else. So training your, your attention and your focus. Has there ever been a time where you like held on to something entirely too long? Yes. Yeah. I, and and this is not. And then how did you realize that you're you like? Know, sometimes you hold on to something too long because, I, in, in fact, all of the cases I've had a couple of cases like that. 
But in both cases, it's been where, as I said earlier, I always bring in business partners, and you've got business partners who had invested, and they're just passive investors. The last thing you ever want to do is to leave somebody hanging. You know, even if so, in those cases, I've always felt like I have an, uh, a commitment to spend at least several years of my life devoted to trying to turn things around for them, even if I don't make money on it. Uh, the, the prime example for, for me in that was real estate, and it was on, my only big venture into real estate. We built the Fenimore Mill uh, project over at Cedar Key. If you drive over to Cedar Key out on the end, there's this beautiful historic uh, project called Fenimore, Old Fenimore Mill. Um, and, and we started that project, uh, it, it had a great vision for it, had all the financing lined up, and just about the time we were halfway through construction, the uh, Department of Interior came through and re redid the coastal barrier island regs and, and then drew the line in right through the middle of our property. And all of a sudden, none of, our, none of the people that were going to buy our condominiums were able to get um, uh, 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 insurance. Mm. So, you know, like completely screwed oh the project gosh. up. So we wound up, um, we wound up doing okay on the project, but it was one of those projects where I spent probably four years working with no compensation, never made a penny out of it. Uh, but at least our investors came out whole. So, um, uh, so yeah, so sometimes you just have to hold on to things a long time because it's the right thing to do. Um, and in the long run, everything works out if you always do the right thing. Yeah. And I think that was Martin Luther King that there's all, it's always the right, it's always the right time. There's never the wrong time to do the right thing or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I believe in that. So, so entirely much. Um, do you ever get burned out? <laughs> I mean, I'm like sitting here listening to to you, and I'm like, I'm almost getting exhausted listening to <laughs> yeah, like yeah, this yeah. entire list of stuff. I'm like, I'm like, wow, man, you must be the most tired guy on the planet because I'm like, I'm just. just I, I haven't gotten to some of the things that actually keep me running. <laughs> right. So the things that keep me running are. I, number one, I love what I'm doing, right? So, I mean, you could probably tell that. You right. know, it's like exciting. So it's not work. I, it's I mean, you not, don't even look at it as work. It's definitely not work. It's definitely not work. I would go do I this. I mean, that's the secret. I mean, sometimes I do this for free for two years. Uh, you know, I, I've been at Blue Azoo Scout for a couple of years now full time. I, you know, all I do is just keep putting money in. I haven't made any money yet. So, you know, I'm not getting paid for doing this. I do it because I, I really, really love it and enjoy it. The other angle is that when you are successful in business, it lets you do things in the world that are really meaningful. And uh, among those meaningful things, uh, for a number of years, we brought Challenge Day into the Alachua County Schools. It's a really, really great experiential program where you bring a couple hundred folks from various aspects of life in a high school into a gymnasium and spend an entire day in a gym gymnasium with a couple hundred of these young people. And you're just sharing incredible stories that folks never wind up sharing and doing it in, in these experiential exercises. And by about two thirds of the way through the day, all these barriers between all the different groups and cliques at the, at the high school totally melted. And people you would never expect to be hugging each other, hugging each other, and folks are crying. I mean, it's just like really meaningful, meaningful stuff. So things like Challenge Day, really important. The work that the Cade Museum's doing on bringing young kids in from the east side and uh, you know kids that wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to get in there and be experienced, uh, be, be exposed to the, the the music and the creativity and the science and the technology, uh, that's really exciting to me. So I love being involved with the Cade on that. 
Uh, about 15 years ago, we started a program in Cambodia called Sustainable Cambodia. Um, and my, I'm, I'm blessed to have a really sweet wife that that uh, is my my fellow volunteer with Sustainable Cambodia. Um, but we have uh, uh, we're working in about 30 villages over there now in in central Cambodia in rural villages. Uh, we've got 6,000 kids in our schools. Uh, we've got um, what led to Cambodia? Uh, pure serendipity. Um, a, a friend of ours here in Gainesville, Bruce Lasky, uh, was a public defender. Uh, took a year off from his life, um, 17 years ago or so, and decided to take a year and travel around the world. And by the way, I don't know if you can still do this, but this, it was a great thing at the time, and I think you can still do this. You can buy a round-the-world ticket that lasts for one year, and you can travel anywhere you want, anywhere in the world, as long as you go east-to-west or west-to-east and you don't back up. And so he bought one of those tickets and got himself a backpack and, and just went from country to country to country to country. And one of the countries he landed in was Cambodia. Somebody said, let me take you out to these rural villages and show you where I grew up. He went out, saw those villages, came back. This was just when we were starting RTI. So I was literally, I was, it was in the IPO month of, of RTI when I got an email from him saying, it's like the Stone Age. These kids have these families have nothing. They don't have water. They don't have food. They don't have employment. And they're they're just out here. And if everybody knows the Khmer Rouge story, it's the, you know, it was this genocide that occurred in the aftermath of the carpet bombing that was done for, as as uh, along the perimeters of the uh, Vietnam War, um, and and it disrupted the food supply in Cambodia, and uh, created kind of a famine situation out of which this radical Maoist group came down from the mountains and decided to take over the country and they wanted to return it to what they called year zero um, of perfect peasant rice farmers and as so they they sought out anybody that had an education and killed them anybody that uh, that had any exposure to a foreign culture they killed them anybody that spoke a foreign language was killed if you wore eyeglasses you were killed um, and, and everybody else was put into forced labor camps to grow rice. And so after a few years, you know, there's nobody left in the country that has any educational background and everybody's displaced. So that's the aftermath into which Bruce landed. And, um, and, and seeing what he did, he sent the email out. It's like the Stone Age here said, you know, we'd like to support. You know, we'll, we'll help you <laughs> to start a little school over there. But after a couple of years, it was really clear that it wasn't going to be a sustainable school because the families, you know, they needed the kids to work in the fields. They needed mm. the kids to carry water. So they needed to have income. So, uh, so I, I took about six months off with my wife, and we went and studied different plans and programs, the way that these work around the world, especially Heifer International, which is a great organization. And uh, we adopted a lot of their policies in, in, and created our own organization and went over there as volunteers and just hired Cambodian staff. And our, you know, our whole organization is based on we have no paid international staff at all. We have no paid overhead. We, we fund all the overhead related to it. Um, and we have all Cambodian staff. So we've got about 150 uh, Sustainable Cambodia team members over there. Um, half of whom are, are graduates who started out as little kids in our program, went through all of our schools, graduated, got a, a scholarship from us to go to Cambodian University, came back and are now part of our team. 
though we've had about 400 uh, graduates now that have gone through the university program in, in Cambodia Dang, um, and about cool. 6,000 kids in the in the program about uh, 30,000 families so um, again another relationship that led to yeah. your connection to to yeah. something. And and the and, and part of the passion and reason for what I do, so like I say, I love what I do with business and science and technology, but it's also the aftermath, it's the impact that you can have because of the wealth that you create. Yeah. You know, if so the money that you create then gets to go out and replicate and do a lot more good. You know, one of my favorite sayings as I get older in life is that nobody gets to the end of their life and looks back and goes, Oh, you know, I'm started a whole bunch of companies, that was great. Oh, you know, I had I, sure. I employed a lot of people, that was great. You know, you get to the end of your life and you look back and you go, what did I really do to make a difference in the world? And, uh, you know, so that's... that's When I look that's at you and, like, listening to you, I'm just like, man, like, this guy is so fulfilled. You know, like, you just... It, it's obvious to me that you found your purpose and that, and that you know that purpose. Like, you know, we have such... We have a young audience, we have you know, uh, I'm trying to get more and more students to listen and like, you know, I, and I'm talking to, uh, you know, as a, as a 36 year old entrepreneur that's surrounded by students here at the dealership, that's, that's our customers, 95% customer, you know, 95% students. I can't tell you how many people ask, like, how do I find my purpose? Yeah. You know, like, I'm yeah. like, I mean, what would your answer be to something like that? How, what, what, what does somebody need to do in order to find out their reason for being here? Yeah, so the, so the first thing is I, I really, really congratulate them for asking the question because that means that they're gonna find the answer, right? I mean, the, the first thing is to know that there's something bigger than just, you know, just, just keeping up with the Joneses and making more money. Right. <clears throat> um, science and data is really clear on that. I mean, if you go look at, the, if you look at, at family wealth and family income in the developed world and in the United States, there's a reverse correlation between wealth and income and quality of life. Uh, you know, the, the more money people make, the less happy they are. And the science and data on that's really clear. So asking the question means you're on the right path, you know. And, and I would say that, that it's always about just going out and finding people, finding any organization or any people that need help. The more that you're outside of your own head, the more that you're out in other people's lives and experiencing what they're experiencing and, and, and to some extent helping them through that, that's where you're going to find and just keep doing that. You know, you'll find the right fit as, as, as you're going through that process. doesn't mean you need to dedicate yourself to being a nonprofit person. I, I, you can tell I'm not a nonprofit person. You know, I believe in making money uh, because money does a lot of great things in the world. Um, so, uh, but, but that's, that's how you're going to find it going and helping other people. Um, <clears throat> what do you, uh, do you do a lot of things to invest into yourself? I mean, from like, I mean, do you listen to any podcasts or read books or? Yeah. yeah so on, on, uh, on the reading side, I'm primarily on history. I really love American history. And, uh, you know, so I've read the histories on a, a number of our presidents in the United, in, in the U S but also especially revolutionary war and constitution, you know, the formation of the country that, that time that, 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 uh, uh, fulfillment, if you will, of the enlightenment was a really a great period I think it just we had it's hard for me to believe that we had so many amazing things come together in the Constitution and at the same time they left so many really important things out <laughs> right. and, and yet they also knew that they were leaving them out and they had to kind of compromise to get there 
and they figured that if we create this this beautiful document, it will become a living document, and that over time it will evolve into taking care of those things that we left out, and they trusted that from that enlightenment perspective, and, and in fact it, it has happened. So I so I, I really like history. I love studying that, especially that period of history. Um, Does it so, help you in your business? Um, like, or is it just oh, that's yeah, just something probably. that you do to? Fo- no, probably, especially when you're reading, uh, you know, all the major decisions the folks have had to make, and, yeah. in at, at at various times in our country's history and political life and and the world's history. Yeah, I mean, there are times when I'm I'm sure that some of the decisions that I make are are either colored by or guided by things that I've learned from reading history. I've always had a super fascination with history. And I think, I think the, the biggest reason, honestly, is because, you know, I, I went overseas for three years and lived in England. And when I realized that, wow, things are a lot older over here. Boy, they <laughs> you are, know? Aren't they? I mean, yeah. Yeah. if anybody has the opportunity to travel and go to Europe and explore, <laughs> yeah. like you should absolutely do it. Because I just realized, I was like, man, the United States is, so yeah. young. Yeah, I, I, I live in a literally a, a, a historic home in the Northeast Duck Pond up there. It's built in 1941. <laughs> and, and over in Europe, you go to a historic home and it was built in 1280. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, oh, that's old. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And, and you know, uh, we took a trip to, uh, to France and, and uh, walked the beaches um, of Normandy where the guys yeah. uh, all came ashore and stormed those cliffs. And oh my God, when you walk underneath those cliffs, it's unbelievable. It's transformative. I encourage everybody, that, anybody that gets to Europe should definitely uh, definitely take take time to do that. Uh, we're talking about things that, that sustain. So having that purpose for the money is a mm-hmm. big sustaining element of it. And the work that you do with the kids and the Cambodians and all that, that's a big part of it. The fact that I love it and all that is a big part of it. There's also the physical side. I am uh, a workout nut. <laughs> so uh, I'm every morning I'm going to either be at the gym or running typically at the gym. Uh, and I'll spend an hour and a half, um, you know, every day doing physical exercise of some sort. I don't think people um, realize how important that is. It, it's transformative. And again, back that's on science. That's the biggest data. investment that you probably can make into yourself it, is on the physical and nutritional side. I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly food and nutrition too. But the, uh, yeah, I mean, again, all the, again, I'm a science geek, right? So all the science and all the data just shows that everything from your neurological health to your, uh, you know, your mental health, to your uh, emotional balance um, and certainly your physical well-being, all of those things are tied to the level of exercise that, that that you get. So getting out there and really just finding something that you're passionate about and doing, whether it's biking or or, or swimming or, or 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 gym gym work or whatever it is or boxing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for everybody who was listening earlier, the boxing gym was thumping through the wall again. So we apologize on the audio. Yeah. It will not always be there. I promise. But boxing is a great exercise. Yeah. <laughs> Really good. So, uh, yeah, anything that you can do like that's going to really, uh, really, uh, you know, really improve your life. Can I? Uh, I want to kind of jump back into like the the business stuff again in re- in relation to going public. I mean, when did like? Because I know nothing about that process. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, uh, I mean, what is that process like? When do you make a decision that hey, this is definitely the time to you know to take it public? 
I mean, can you just walk me through that a little bit? Cause yeah. I'm just kind of curious. So, so, you know, obviously being public, uh, being a public company, it isn't going to be a fit for every type of business, right? It's, it's gotta be a business that has at, at the very least completely national scope or, you know, probably ideally international scope. Um, uh, and then it needs to be something where, especially in today's markets, but even 15 years ago, uh, you need to be, you know, having re- uh, the opportunity for revenues in the 150 to 250 million minimum. Uh, so you've got to get over those kinds of levels or be able to achieve those kinds of levels and, and have a clear path to getting to that kind of revenue stream in order to consider being a public company. So when you're when you're first starting your company, you should probably have some idea, is this a company that I might take public or not? Because if it is something that you might take public, you'd probably want to you're going to want to do things a little differently as you as you grow. Um, it, it's okay to spend a lot more money as as you're growing, and to spend money on buying revenue, if you will, on building you know building market share, um, and and you can build you can kind of grow with a deficit. You don't need to be making a profit if you're going to go public, because what you're really doing is just trying to grow revenue and get up to that 200 250 million revenue level or whatever, so you can do your IPO. There's a bit of a gamble, even if you are the type of company that can do that, because the markets are fickle, and there are times when IPOs are in vogue and times when they're not. Uh, so fickle with RTI, when we were getting ready to do our RTI uh, January, February, March of 2000, our bankers are all getting lined up. We're figuring out which bankers we're going to use. You do what's called a, a you know kind of a fashion show or whatever. You know, you pick out the uh, the bankers that you want, they all come through and, and, and tell you what a great job they're going to do. Um, we wound up choosing uh, Lehman Brothers, who was a, they were a terrific, terrific team. Uh, it was a terrific firm. Um, and, uh, and Bank of America were our two leads. So as part, you know, as part of all that, um, we're, we're getting ready to do the IPO, but it takes time. You've got to get audits, you know, completed and all the, and, and everybody, you literally go up to New York and you'll sit around a table with 30 people, uh, 20 of whom are high paid attorneys, uh, from every one of the investment banks involved and from your own banks. And you're all sitting around going through page by page by page through those really long 150 page prospectuses mm. word by word and nobody's ever going to read that stuff <laughs> and, and you all kind of know it but it costs a ton of money and a ton of time you get through it in our case we got to july and we were just ready to pull the trigger on the ipo and the bankers said you know it's it's july it's you know everybody's Everybody's going to be going on vacation. Traditionally, everybody's gone from the mid-July to the mid-August. He said, let's wait until everybody comes back in September. We'll launch this the first week of September, and it'll be a really successful IPO. We thought about it internally and said, you know what? We're, we're all ready. We've got two weeks left before everybody must leave on vacation, so let's go ahead and do it now. We did it. We were successful with the IPO. The market crashed three weeks later mm. and didn't recover. There wasn't an IPO done for two years. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so everything that I described in, the, in this in this podcast would have probably never happened if if we had taken the advice to delay just that extra six weeks and, and wait and go out later. So it was so, just simply a gut instinct of well, now, now's it, the time? It was, and it could have been 50-50 wrong. I mean, who knows? But but it worked out, we, it worked out for the best. 
But yeah, it's just one of those things that there's a serendipity involved in an IPO. Yeah, what's so, it like looking back to that moment now and yeah. being like, oh well, my gosh, if we hadn't done that? Yeah, there was a really cute movie called Sliding Doors, which uh, my wife and I have always loved, uh, that, that is you know, about you know, basically two different uh, time frames that people take through their lives as you know, a door slides shut and slides open and they take one path instead of the other. And then for the rest of the movie, you're following both of the two paths simultaneously. Uh, interesting. Uh, and, and so that was our... I've never seen that. Have you that was, that <laughs> was our, seen that? Anybody? That no. was our <laughs> sliding door moment. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know... It, who knows? What's Things, your wife think of all this? I mean, being out, I mean, you guys oh, been together how long? Oh yeah, we, we just had our twenty, our 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 first twenty first year anniversary. Um, so, uh, <laughs> and I say first because she used to live in Tahoe, uh, lived in Tahoe for most of her adult life before we married, and so when we got married, we got married here on the on, on the nineteenth and up there on the twenty sixth in Tahoe. So we okay. have a Gainesville we have a Gainesville anniversary and a Tahoe anniversary. I'm right in between them right now. Okay. So this Friday will be our, our Tahoe anniversary or Okay, well happy so, anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and as to what she thinks of me, she thinks I'm crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean we, it takes a very special woman to to put up with entrepreneurs. <laughs> that's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And she's you know, uh, and, and probably also, husbands on the other way for women entrepreneurs too. <laughs> I'm sure, and she's got business background too. She, uh, uh, for a number of years, she ran Chart, uh, uh, did some of the central office stuff for Chart House, the Chart House chain of restaurants. Uh, so she's got kind of that national element of that, and she's got an accounting background. And she, so you know, she's she into a lot of that kind of stuff and, too. And she basically runs the entire international office as a volunteer of Sustainable Cambodia, with you know, with 150. Um, folks in, involved in about a half a million dollar budget and and just does all that as volunteer work. So she's got a pretty good, she, she's so pretty she's busy. she's right in it as well. She's pretty busy, yeah. That's awesome, yeah. well good yeah. for her. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, one of the questions, I, it's funny, last night I put out a question saying that uh, I was inter- <coughs> interviewing a badass entrepreneur this morning and, <laughs> and I said, hey, um, somebody sent me a question and so one of the questions that I got asked and, and I've, I think it's a, a solid question, um, is if you could start all over again, what would you have done differently along your journey? <laughs> you know, I, I read uh, um, Car and Driver magazine, and that's always their last page in their magazine. They have a little thing where every month they ask somebody, so what would you have done differently? Yeah. And, and I always start to read that article and I go, nothing. <laughs> um, you know, there are so many mistakes that I've made in my life so many times that, that I look back and I go, gosh, I wish I hadn't done that. If I had just done this instead, things would have worked out better. And yet, talk about sliding doors, there are a thousand sliding doors from every one of those moments. I mean, if I were to go back and correct any of those things that I kind of wish I hadn't, hadn't, that hadn't happened that way, um, everything that has happened since would be different. And I don't know. I mean, I live a, a really beautiful life. I've got, you know, we live in the duck pond. It's like the most amazing part of Gainesville, in my opinion. I'm involved in the downtown. I love that. We get to go out to Tahoe, which is like God's country. It's amazing out there in Tahoe. Uh, my, uh, my, my, my son and his wife built their house right behind ours, so we have shared backyards. I've got my oh, granddaughter cool. that walks through my little backyard oh, to come see me. I'm like going, none of this might exist. None of it might exist if I had changed any of those things in the past. So 
It kind of goes I back would, to I your would say nothing. Kind of <laughs> goes back to your point earlier about just being able to make those little pivots and just recognizing. Yeah. And and that's probably the other side of it is that if any of those things had changed, everything probably would have worked out. I'm I'm more than a glass half full kind of guy. Uh, you know, I, I really do believe in the long run that, you know, that that if you're doing every, if you're doing things for the right reason, everything works out. What do you think of gain? I mean, you've been here a long time. What do you think of ga- the change that has happened in Gainesville over I all these years? I love it. I love it. It's it's uh, especially you know downtown Gainesville and everything from the the corridor from the university to the downtown. Um, uh, it's a it's a really sweet and beautiful place to live. Um, I, and I'm, entrepreneurship. I mean, you know, we we've talked about it on the podcast before that like sometimes like entrepreneurship is kind of a fad in a way. Like there, it takes a very very special person to be an entrepreneur and. You know, you always hear that, I don't know, like 95% or something crazy of startups in their first five years, you know, fail. Um, and, and But Gainesville has become such a hub of entrepreneurship. I mean, what advice would you give to those, to a lot of those people that are probably gonna fall into that 95% category? I would say just- And I don't know if that's like the legit statistic, by the way. I just yeah. know it's like an astronomical amount of startups fail. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, I, I, failure is not a bad thing, right? I mean, you know, there, there's got to be a, our whole evolutionary path as, as a species, and all the species on the planet have only evolved because of failure. Um, so failure is really a positive thing. And, and so I would just say, as long as something <clears throat> feels right and it feels in your heart like you're doing the right thing and you're going the right direction, keep working hard at it, keep doing it, um, if uh, you, you'll you'll know, I think if things begin to not feel like they're aligned right, if they're if they're not, you're gonna have to let it go. Uh, be sure that you take care of anybody that was involved that you have made a commitment to. Uh, try to always leave things as positive as you can in the aftermath of that, and then pick it up and go start it again because the next one's gonna have a better chance of success than the last one every time your next one's gonna have a better chance of success than the one before it because that's the way that evolution and failure work is they make us better. Is there a way somebody can recognize whether or not entrepreneurship is for them? I think they just have to have a passion for it. Okay. I mean, it's just all about passion. It's all about heart. Um, and then and then to be successful, you need to kind of learn as much as you can. Uh, you know, it's difficult to go in and say, well, I'm gonna be an entrepreneur if you don't know you know, how, how all the bits and pieces of that business work. So right. it's really important if you're gonna be an entrepreneur, in my mind, you, you, know, you, you know, you need to know how the mechanics of the business work, what, it, what it's like to sit at the front desk and sell things, what it's like to be in the back uh, clerking and getting things out and manufacturing things or whatever. You just need to know how all of it works. I've just, you know, it's funny because when I look back at, you know, my 14 years as an entrepreneur, I'm just very much like me. I just went after the opportunity. I don't think I really ever realized that I was destined to be an entrepreneur. I just recognized an opportunity and I took it. And thankfully things worked out. And and the more I dive deeper and deeper and deeper, I'm like, oh man, I, I take risks all day. It doesn't even bother me. And I mean, we got into a conversation just last night about being risk, risk averse and that kind of thing. And I mean, risk just doesn't bother me at all. And I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Yeah, I, I couldn't either. I, I, 
I don't know that I've really worked for anybody since, uh, you know, I don't know, since maybe 13 when I was in the theater, yeah. in the movie theater. <laughs> for 35 cents. Yeah, right, right, exactly. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for being here. I mean, your story is just absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and this biography, I mean, what's ne- I guess what's next? I mean, you're doing Scout right now. Yeah. Right, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I I really don't know after after Scout and after uh, after EEG now, um, you know, those will take another another two or three years to you know to get them to fruition. Yeah, um, and I don't know what what will pop up. There will probably be some opportunity. Um, I, you know, do I you just, just kind of like wait work. for things to come around the corner and see what the next opportunity is, or do you go, like are right now? Do you plan an exit strategy? for organizations that you get involved in? No, I, I don't. And uh, what I always try to do in the organizations is set the organizations up so that they would definitely succeed without me. Okay. And then, and then the right time will, will, will appear for me to leave. So I don't ever set a timetable and say it's gonna happen by a certain date. Gotcha. But, but that's again, the, you know, if you're hiring people that are smarter than you are and are better than you are in all the aspects of running the business, it, that's kind of easy because I wind up not doing much, right? I mean, that's probably not true, but but I I, I do a little bit of everything, but uh, but there's somebody in that in every company who's better than I am at whatever they're doing. I'm pretty sure everybody's better than I am. <laughs> I, I'm completely sure everybody's better than I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, we probably wouldn't be great business partners. <laughs> we, we'd sit around and go, well, what are you doing? Hello, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we could always give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't give it a try. If you have any ideas, uh, let me know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, very good. Hey, um, before we sign off, Tell people where they can connect with you, whether that's with Scout, like social media, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, there, they, is, um, yeah, uh, through uh, through Scout, um, <clears throat> they can. Uh, uh, of course, uh, our, you know our website is findmyscout.com. Okay, findmyscout.com, and um, all the links to social are probably on there too. Yep, all the yeah, all the links are there. Uh, my my company, Synogen, uh, uh, is actually Jamie Grooms and I are still the partners in Synogen. Um, you know, my original founder of, of uh, RTI and Oxygen and all those other companies. That's so cool. Um, those relationships, man, have just yeah. so, blossomed uh, into new things. So Synogen, they can also visit the Synogen um, uh, website. Okay. And do you guys, uh, do you guys, is that just Synogen.com? Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to yeah, cut you off. Yeah, okay. Synogen.com. Um, do you guys raise money or anything for your Cambodia stuff? Yeah, so uh, sustainablecambodia.org. Thanks for asking that. Yeah, yeah, so, okay. Um, yeah, sustainable sustainablecambodia.org. Um, and folks can do everything from sponsor kids there. Uh, we've got individual child sponsorship of, of the kids that are in the, the various villages and the various schools, uh, university scholarship students, um, and, and or you can donate wells and all sorts of stuff on the site. That's super cool, yeah. man. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, and just thank you for everything that you do for the entrepreneurial scene here in Gainesville. Um, thanks for being on our podcast and telling this awesome story. And um, you know, just it was a pleasure having you. Oh, thanks, thanks for having me on. So Gainesville, Great. there it is, Richard Allen. Definitely support him and um, support his companies. And thank you so much for listening. This is the WHOA GNV podcast, the podcast bringing you businesses and individuals that make you go. Whoa, we'll see you later. Bye.